The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Holy One, when Isaiah wrote this, he and his readers could not imagine what was really meant by you in their midst. By you in their midst, turning your anger away and becoming their salvation. We dare pray to you now because you have opened up the way of pleasure to us. You welcome us into your presence. You, in fact, have come in amongst us as our song, our joy, our salvation. We give you praise for that, Holy One. Lord, as we open up your word today, would you come into our midst again? Make clear to us who you are. Draw our hearts after you. Help us to understand a little more of ourselves, a little more of how you work with us. Woo us, draw us, win us to you. Give grace now, Lord, to us as we speak and listen. We would honor you in all that is said here, all that is thought and understood here, and in all that happens because of this time. Be honored in our midst, Lord, I pray. Amen. In early September of 2006, I began to preach through the Gospel of John. And now, a little over a year later, we are coming to the end. After today, there are just two more sermons left in John, in what is essentially the epilogue of chapter 21. Today, the heart of the book ends in chapter 20. Over the last couple weeks, we've been seeing what is a summary of the book. And today is going to be a bit of a summary as well. The central cluster today, the central cluster of the main themes of the book of John is brought forth for us again. They come out to us and this cluster is urged on us one more time. We've been looking at themes the last several weeks. We've seen things come out. We've been looking at the resurrection and how this event happened in time, but John's recorded it for us to, to reveal some of his ideas, some of the things he's been writing for us. Consider Mary, for instance. Blind because of her sorrow blinded in sorrow, and then the sorrow turned to joy when she sees the resurrected Christ. We've talked about those things before. Blindness, sorrow, change when you see Christ. Don't be troubled. Instead, believe in me. We've seen that. Or how about the disciples last week, locked up in their upper room, fear of man controlling them. In fear, holding back because of that. And then that changes when they comprehend Christ and see Him raised in front of them, come to understand what it is that God has done on their behalf, made peace with them. The Spirit mentioned, the Spirit being poured out, the age of the Spirit come, sent out to be ambassadors. Lots of themes there we've talked about before. But the central themes of the whole book of John come out today. Again, in a factual story, in something that actually happened, Jesus interacting with one disciple in particular, 
But John writes this to us so as to make the central issues of his gospel clear. That's what we're going to look at today. Let me read the passage. John, the end of chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The passage begins with an editorial comment from John the writer. For one reason or another, Thomas had not been present with the disciples the week before. And so he hadn't seen Christ. He's having a very hard time believing what he's been told about Jesus raised. Thomas wants to see the proof. To see, to touch, to see the holes, to put his finger in the nail marks, he says. Must be from Missouri. His theme is, show me. And he's a little bit obstinate here. Repeating himself. See the mark of the nails, put my finger in the mark of the nails, put my hand into his side, and if that does not happen, you can forget about me believing any of this stuff about him being raised. This is a little more than doubt. We're in the habit of calling Thomas Doubting Thomas. It's not exactly doubt. If, if you think of doubt as kind of being uncertain about something, as wavering back and forth between two positions, this is not that kind of doubt. It might be better to call him unbelieving Thomas, as Jesus does down in verse 27. Thomas's sort of doubt is one of saying, I don't believe it happened. And I'm not going to believe it happened unless I put my hands on the physical evidence. That's the kind of doubt or unbelief that we're dealing with here. In verse 26, Jesus graciously comes to deal with that unbelief. Disciples are again gathered behind locked doors. The transformation that we talked about last week, about the fear of man being transformed into bold joy when you contemplate the peace that God has made for us with him and God, between us and God, that transformation has not fully happened in them yet. The Spirit has not been poured out on them yet. So they're still trapped here in the fear of man behind these locked doors. And Jesus comes, stands, reminds them again, peace be with you. Says the same thing, shalom. May the peace and rest and blessing and goodness and righteousness of God rest on you. It's true, guys. I'm reminding you. But the real reason he's there is Thomas. And so he moves on to him. He goes to him and tells Thomas to do just what it is that Thomas said he wanted to do. Go over here, Thomas. Get your hand, your finger, put it in the hole. Put it into the, the gap in my side. 
Take a look at this. See it. Put your hand on the evidence. Literally, last sentence of verse 27. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. This is not in the sense of believe for the very first time. Remember that Thomas is one of the 11 disciples that Jesus already said was clean. It's a bit tricky for us to think about this. Thomas is clean, but he's in this stage where the resurrection is an entirely foreign idea to him. He cannot believe that, cannot get his mind around that. He's clean, but doesn't get it. It's not actually that unique. Disciples, knowing unbelief, it's not that unique to him. You realize a Christian can be marked by unbelief. Think about that. Every sin, every sin, every time you sin, comes from unbelief. God says you should do or think or want or say X, Y, Z, but A, B, C looks pretty good. Seems pretty tempting, pretty attractive. Which way should I go here? With what God says or what I want? With what God says or what the world offers? Which way? No, I'm going to go with my thought here. That's unbelief. That's at the root of every sin. Unbelief is not just a problem for the non-Christian. It's an issue for the Christian to face as well. Not in the same way, but it's the same basic issue. Do you believe God today, right now, in this or not? And what Jesus is dealing with here is a disciple who's currently in unbelief. And he calls him back to firm belief. Look at this. Look at this. And Thomas sees. And he responds in shock. This is real shock and awe right here. My Lord and my God. This is not Thomas swearing. He's a first century Jew. He doesn't swear. Oh my God. That is not what he's saying. He is speaking to Jesus. You can almost see him falling to his knees. My Lord and my God. You, right here, standing in front of me. You are my Lord and my God. I see. He's ascribing to him. Master. Ruler. God in flesh. This is John's summary. In case you missed it all throughout the book, in case you missed it in all the I am statements, where Jesus takes upon himself the name Yahweh, the name of the Lord, that's me, Jesus says repeatedly, in case you missed it there, or in case you missed it when Jesus acts like God repeatedly, working on the Sabbath like God obviously does, but people don't. Healing, showing that he's omniscient, in case you didn't see that. Or in case you missed the very first verse of the book, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. It's been all throughout, but here it is summarized. You are God. And Jesus does not deny it. He takes that claim onto himself and actually pushes for more. You believe because you've seen. Notice he does not say, no, 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 that's not true. You believe, you've got it, right conclusion, correct. Because you've seen, it's more of a statement than a question. You believe because you've seen, blessed are those who come to the same conclusion, having not seen. Blessed, fortunate, happy, accepted by God are those who say the same thing that you have just said, Thomas, but don't have the same evidence presented to their hands as you have had presented to you. And that's the perfect lead-in to verses 30 and 31. 
John's summary statement for the book. Read 29, 30, and 31 together. Jesus says, God blesses those who believe that I am God and Lord. John says, therefore, I've written some stuff to you so that you'll come to that same conclusion. I didn't write everything down. There's a lot more that I could have written down, but what I wrote down is sufficient to lead you all to the very same conclusion and to the very same blessing. I have written these things that you may believe, because God blesses those who believe, that you may believe that this one is the Christ, the Son of God. Those terms Christ and Son of God are are roughly synonymous. You can see them back in chapter 1 when Nathanael meets Jesus and says to him, Rabbi, you are the King of Israel. You are the Son of God. He doesn't mean that the physical king ruling on the throne right now, obviously that was Herod and above him would have been Caesar. He means you are the Messianic King. You are the King sent to us from above. You are the King. That is, you are the Son of God. Using those statements in parallel. Jews of that day used the phrase, the Son of God, to refer to the Messiah, not because, by no means because, they thought that the Messianic king was physically descended from God. Rather, that phrase, Son of something, is commonly used to indicate affinity or similarity. For instance, a couple of the disciples are called sons of thunder because they're thunderous in their behavior. Judas is called a son of perdition, son of hell. You can guess why. Son of something means you're like that. You're a representative of that. You have a connection to that. And the Messiah, they understood in the scriptures, would be like God. They didn't understand all the pieces, but they knew the Messiah, when he comes, will be dramatically, marvelously righteous and just, holy and pure and wise and strong, One who saves his people, just like God. The Son of God, the Messiah. They they dared not even dream that God himself would come into their midst in that way. To take on flesh. But they knew the Messiah would be really like God. So they called him the Son. And John says, I have written this book that you might believe that this Jesus is that Son, is that Messiah. This is the one we've been looking for, the one we've been waiting for. And so that by believing, not obeying, not working, not striving, not belief plus working or striving or obeying, that by believing, you may have marvelous life. That's the text. That's the passage. And it is not a stretch to say that these eight verses are a summary of the entire book. Right here in this passage. These verses say what we are supposed to get from the book of John. What's supposed to grip us. They hold up and display Jesus for us to see. Lord, God, Messiah, Son. They hold him up in front of us, call us to believe, and then promise us something stunning if we do. That's what John's about. That's what this passage is about. So here's the main theme of this passage and really of the whole book. Believe in Jesus alone, and you will find 
full, real life. Believe in this Jesus alone and you will find life. Genuinely believe in him. Come to faith in him. That's what the book of John's about. It's what our last whole year has been about, if you think about it. In fact, it's what all of life is about, if you think about it. Give your heart to him. Believe. Entrust yourself to. Lean on. Surrender to Christ. And if you do, you'll find life. That's what the Bible's message is. Where do you find life? In Christ alone. In this Jesus alone. Hold up Christ in front of yourself as supreme over all things and you'll find joy. It's the message of the Bible. It's the message of this passage. I'm going to get at it through two subpoints: One about Jesus and one about us. I'll begin with Jesus. It's the first subpoint. Read the signs. Jesus is the Christ. Read the signs. Remember, that's John's unique word for the miracles. He describes the miracles not just as power displays, not just as like something cool, but as signs that have a message in them. Like a sign along a road, you're driving along and you read the sign and you realize, oh, this is where I am, this is where I'm going, this is what I'm looking at here. I read the sign. John says that the miracles are signs. There are a lot of other signs that he did, but the ones he wrote down are sufficient to convey a message. Read it. And learn, Jesus is the Christ. The search for the Christ, or the Messiah. In English, that basically means the anointed one, the special chosen one. The search for the Messiah had been going on for a thousand years in Israel, ever since the day of great King David. God had promised to David that he would seat his sons one after another after another on the throne over his people Israel. And in talking about that, he described that eventually we're going to come to one great son, We've talked about this before. One great son, the son, who will reign over all the people. God said it to David and then kept saying it in the prophets. Consider Ezekiel, chapter 37. That's a great chapter. Read that whole chapter. This is written 400 years after David died. Listen to how God keeps the hope alive in his people. He says in Ezekiel 37, They shall be my people, and I will be their God they and their children shall dwell in the land, and David, my servant, will be prince over them forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them forever. David reigning forever in the day of the covenant of peace. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. This is the Christ. You hear the themes coming in. That hope was held up for a thousand years. They kept looking and kept waiting. And John's answering their question. When's the Messiah coming? Here he is. Now on the surface it might seem, if that's the question John's answering, then he's not talking to me. Because I have never wondered who the Messiah was. I have never wondered when the Messiah was coming. Never even thought about the word Messiah until after I heard about Jesus. So it's not my question. John's not talking to me. Hold on, he is. We're not first century Jews. We're not waiting for the Messiah to come. We don't look at every male birth wondering if this is the one. We're not like that. However, we are people who live in a real world. And we are well acquainted with fallenness and lostness and brokenness. Read the newspaper. Look at your own life. Look at the lives of your friends. 
We look around at the world, we see in it war, conflict, discord, crime, financial pressure, child abuse, everywhere. Look inside and you see alienation and questions and fears, guilt and shame. And we all wonder, is there a solution to this? Is this going to end? Where's God? Doesn't he care? Isn't he going to act? Isn't he going to change this? End it? Fix it? Yes, in the Messiah. We're coming at it from different angles, but we're looking for the same thing. God to fix it in the Messiah. We're looking for the Messiah, though we don't know it. And John's point is, Jesus of Nazareth, this guy right here, this physical, historical person, it's him. He's the one. All the signs point that way. He turned water into wine, displaying his glory, forecasting how he's the Messiah who brings in the banquet of abundance at the time when all the world's ills out there are fixed. That's him. He sets the table for that banquet. He healed a man on the Sabbath when only God can work. But remember what he did? He waded in amongst the people in misery at the pool of Siloam. He waded in amongst them and healed when no one else would go there at all. That's God at work. He healed blindness, giving sight. He brought a man back from the dead. All these signs again and again and again are saying, this one is the one who gives abundance. This one is the one who fixes the ills of the world. This one gives life. All the signs are saying it. But the greatest sign that says it was the one first hinted at in chapter 2. When Jesus clears out the temple and the Jews say to him, Hey, what right do you have to do this? Who do you think you are? Show us a sign that proves you can do it. And he said, Destroy this temple, referring to himself, and in three days I will raise it up again. And he stands in front of Thomas and says, Look, read the sign, Thomas. And Thomas reads it sees. They destroyed you. You have risen. You are the Lord. You are the one who is in charge of all things. You are the one who reigns over all of life. You are sovereign. All might. All power. You've destroyed death, conquering the grave. You are the one. That's the message. You're meant to read that sign. This is the deliverer, the Christ. This one. This is how God brings people back to life. This is the Lamb slain to cover over sin, to deal with the biggest problem in here, sin. And to deal with the biggest problem out there, sin. This is the Lamb slain to deliver, but not to deliver everybody. Only to deliver those who hide under His blood. This is the Christ. You're meant to read that sign, fall down in front of Him, worship Him, adore Him, to have your heart set on Him, to live and think and breathe Christ-centeredly. It's the call. We are to become enamored with this Jesus in the book of John. This one. It should go without saying that when John talks about Jesus, he means this Jesus, the one he just wrote about. It should go without saying, but it doesn't, so I'm going to have to say it. When I was young, big Chicago Cubs fan, 
When I was young, Ivan DeJesus played shortstop for the Chicago Cubs. When I was a little kid and didn't understand anything about Spanish, nor did any of my friends. So when we saw Ivan DeJesus' baseball card, his name written on it, capital D, lowercase e, capital J-E-S-U-S, we looked at that and said, hey, Jesus plays short for the Cubs. What do you know? They should be better than they are. I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> we read that. We joked around with it. Named Jesus. And his name was pretty close, especially to our young eyes. Never seen anything like that before. But you'd say to me, what are you talking about? That's Ivan de Jesus, not Jesus. I mean, kind of close if you look at it a certain way, but that's not Jesus. That's not the Jesus, the one that we're talking about here. You'd be right, it's not. Close, but not. Nor are any of the other of thousands of men or boys in the world named Jesus or Jesus or Yeshua. Nor are any of the other people in any of the other religions or religious books who have the name J-E-S-U-S attached to them but are not this one. It should go without saying that when John says, trust Jesus, he means this Jesus, the one he just told us about. That's the one he's calling us to, not some other sort of kind of close name. He's calling us to this word, who in the beginning, before anything anywhere was, he was. With God, God. Add in the Spirit, and you've got three and one. This one, who is the second person of the Trinity, who came to earth and took on a body, took the name Jesus. That's who John's talking about. This one, killed on a cross to pay for sin. That's the one John's calling us to. Not some other Jesus. This Jesus is the Lord and God of Thomas and the Lord and God of you and me, all of us. He is the one we must be turned towards. He is the one we must embrace and honor. And the last sign proves it. Killed and raised and raised up, exalted. God has put his stamp of approval and honored this Jesus. We must do likewise. And that gets us to the second subpoint. All that was just said there is true, whether or not any of us ever hear it, whether or not any of us ever respond to it, it's true. But we have to respond to it. That's what we're being called to and pushed towards. This passage contains some form of the word believe seven times. It's everywhere there, seven times. It's in various tenses. It's in the negative. It's in command forms on the lips of Thomas, Jesus, on John's lips by way of written summary. It's all over the place. Obviously, it's a major concept. So here's the second point. Second sub-point. Put it in the words of Jesus. Do not disbelieve, but believe and live. Do not disbelieve, but believe and live. Whoever you are, wherever you are, this is God's word to you. Do not disbelieve. Believe. If you've not believed yet at all, ever, believe now. Do not remain in permanent 
fatal unbelief. Some here need to hear this, and I cannot overemphasize how important this is, how crucial this is for your sake. Jesus, in verse 29, said, Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. Blessed are they who have not seen physically what Thomas has seen, but have come to the same conclusion. Blessed by God are those. Well, how? Blessed in what way? That's what John elaborates on in verse 31. Those who believe receive life in the name of Jesus. Receive life. God blesses by giving life to already living people. What's the deal with that? What's well, like he said to Nicodemus back in chapter 3? Talking to a living, breathing, walking, talking man, he said, you're dead. You have to be born again from above. Born by God. You must be birthed. You're not alive. What are you talking about? I'm talking to you. No, you're not. You're physically alive, obviously. You're not spiritually alive. You must be born from above by God. Chapter 1, verse 12. To all who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Get that. He gave the right to become children of God. They don't start out that way. None of us start out as God's children. But we can become God's children. He can become our Father. How? To those who receive Him. To those who believe in His name. And when that happens, we're spiritually born again and come alive again. And we live. Find life, real life in here. Peace and joy and hope. The blessedness of God above it all. The right the access to behold the glory of God forever, to see Him and to fellowship with Him, to be connected to Him, to come into relationship with Him. It's a marvelous blessing. The call is to believe and do not disbelieve. Believe and find life, hope. Obviously, John, obviously, the whole Bible is speaking that message to those who do not yet believe and have never believed and calling you, come in to hope. Come into life. Give your heart to Christ. But I know very well that most of us here already have done that. This is still God's message to you. Still the call to you is believe Believe, believe, believe. Keep believing constantly. You've been saved by faith and now you are called to walk not by sight but by faith. Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians. Unbelief is an issue that the Christian faces too. Not in the same way. And eventually, as you look at unbelief in a Christian's life, eventually you should say, how much unbelief can a Christian have before one should wonder if that person is actually a Christian? There's a line there somewhere. I don't know where that line is. But far before that line, all of us know unbelief because all of us are sinners. Think about this in your life. A couple of examples. Your spouse lashes out at you, says something kind of hurtful, kind of harsh to you. Maybe they spend too much time at work or too much time in some hobby or too much time with other people. Something like that happens and you feel in some way hurt, denigrated, not cared for, taken advantage of, something like that. 
That's just a fact. That happens. That happens in every one of our marriages in some degree or another. But how you respond to that is what determines whether or not you find life. Move on to another example. You're a teenager. You're a high school student. Thinking through life, your social situations, hopefully not a marriage situation. This is Utah, but hopefully we're not dealing with marriage in high school. So you're thinking through relational situations, dating situations, let's say. And you're thinking, there are a lot of pressures that I'm looking at here in this. A lot, of, a lot of pressures to maybe do some things I don't want to do, or maybe try to be somebody that is acceptable. That just happens. How you respond to that is what's critical. You're an elementary student. You're in, in third grade or fourth grade or fifth grade. Your mom or dad tells you to clean up your room. Come here right now. Put the toys away. Something like that. That's going to be the end of the night's play. That's not very fun. That just happens. How you respond to that is the issue. In every one of those examples, you're going to be immediately faced with, which way do I go here? Take the last one first. I know the Bible, assuming that that third, fourth, fifth grader knows, I know that the Bible says, obey your mom and dad, that it might go well with you. It's the first commandment with a promise. What the text says. The Bible says, obey my mom and dad, because God has promised to bless me. I'm really liking playing. That's going to be work to clean up. Which way do I go here? Obey, follow, find life blessing there? Or do I really think that life is found over here in what I want to do? Which choice do you make? Which way do you go if you're in third grade or fourth grade or fifth grade? To say no to that and to come this way is disobedience that comes from unbelief. I don't actually believe that God blesses and rewards me in my obedience to him. It's the first commandment with the promise. It's not true. This is where life is found. This is what I really will be blessed by. You're a high school student. It's the same thing. Will life be found for you? Life be found for you and your friends? What they say or do, how you come off to them? Maybe you're thinking about going to college or, or getting a job or something like that after you graduate. Will life be found in you pursuing your agenda, your goals? Or will life be found in laying your life open before God and saying, Lord, you bestow honor. The psalmist tells me that you bestow honor and praise. I'm going to stand here with you, Lord, even if my friends reject me even if it costs me what I think I really want to do, my, my agenda for my future. To say no to this and to pursue blessing and life over here in your friends and your own agenda is unbelief. No, God, you don't bestow honor and pleasure. My friends do. My career lived my way does. I don't believe that. I believe this with your spouse. Do you believe that in the presence of Christ, in his presence is fullness of joy? you believe that? Or does fullness of joy come when your spouse cooperates and says kind things to you? 
Which do you believe? Is the Lord your chosen portion, your cup, your beautiful inheritance? Or is a good marriage with a kind spouse a prerequisite for that? Which is it? To say, I know that you judge justly. I know that you were at work here in my heart and in his heart or her heart. I know that you intend to be all of my pleasure, all of my joy, my contentment, what my heart is fastened on. But that's not good enough right now. I'm going to let this person have a piece of my mind. You judge justly. That's way too far in the future. I want justice now, and so I'm going to go get it. I could elaborate on that, but do you see what I'm saying there? Every time you choose away from God and follow after your way, the world's way, the flesh's way, whatever way you want to, whatever way you want to put that, it's coming from unbelief. I read the promises. I see the nature of Christ. I see what he says about him and about me and what he means to be for me. No. And you go this way. Life's not found over here. By believing in him, you have life. Now you have eternal life, but you have life experienced moment after moment after moment. So when you find yourself in those situations or others, what do you do? You say, you stop yourself. You find yourself about to head into sin or contemplating some decision. You stop yourself and you say, self, what do you believe right now? Where's your heart focus? Where's your heart set, self? Talk to yourself. Am I listening? Am I following? Do I most hope to have my life conform to this one? Do I most believe that he is what I need? Or am I looking somewhere else? The process of walking by faith and not by sight is that right there. Step by step by step by step. Sight What looks right is going to be all here on on this plane with your friends, with people around you, neighbors and co-workers. Faith brings this in. and says, I know some things and I believe them. I entrust myself to them. I'm going to walk this path. This is how the believer walks through life. It's how this speaks to the Christian and calls the Christian to Believe in Christ and find life. This book for the Christian holds up Christ in front of you. says, look at him. Look at all that he is and all that he has done. Will he not also give you life day after day after day? He's given you life in the big sense of eternal life. He'll give you life this day and this day and this day too. Trust him. Walk with him. It's a message to the Christian as well. Jesus is held up here in front of us. We are called to believe in this Jesus alone and find real life. Let me pray. Lord, the struggle that we face moment by moment has never been any different from the Garden of Eden. Satan called Eve to question you and your goodness to walk a different path. God, help us to see that. Give grace to us to help us to see that and to believe you and not what looks right to our eyes.
Not what sounds right to our ears. Not what seems appealing to our flesh. Lord, that, that is an almost impossible thing for us as fallen people. But would you give grace to enable it to happen? Lord, would you become our, our song, our salvation, our joy? Be that within us, I pray. Give grace to your people. Give grace to those who are not yet your people. And call us all to believe, to trust, to hope in Christ. This is our prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.